Narrative Futures How do the stories we tell shape how we think about the future, the present, and the past? What is speculation for? And how might we construct better narratives for a better future? Narrative Futures is a podcast coming to you from Futures Thinking, a research network housed in the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. My name is Chelsea Haith. I'm a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of English here at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the second episode of Narrative Futures. With me, virtually and across time zones, is Mahale Mashigo to discuss Afrofuturism and an alternative apocalypse. This podcast is interactive. Following the interview, you'll be treated to two writing prompts designed by novelist and creative writing tutor extraordinaire Louis Greenberg. We invite you to share your response to these with us via email at futuresthinking at torch.ox.ac.uk. We'll share these on the blog, where you'll also be able to find the full transcript of each episode with links to the books, writers and ideas that we discuss. As the world so radically changes, we hope these conversations and ideas give you insight and inspiration to think about how else we might live and create collectively going forward. Mahale Mashigo is a novelist, performer and singer-songwriter, the author of The Yearning and the short story collection Intruders. Her first novel won the University of Johannesburg Prize for debut novel and was longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Awards. She is also a co-writer of South Africa's first black superhero comic, Quezzy, and has released albums and performs under the stage name Black Porcelain. She is also the author of the novel adaptation of the film Beyond the River. Born and raised in Soweto, Johannesburg, Mashigo now resides in a sleepy suburb of Cape Town, where, as she describes it, people either start families or retire. What follows now is an extract from her short story collection, Intruders, published in 2018, to critical acclaim. The story you're about to hear a part of is Untitled 3, and forms part of a series. This short story is an exploration of the minutiae of an apocalypse, amnesia, speculative space-time transcendence, and the consequences of segregation along economic lines in an end-time scenario. from Untitled 3, which is one of three stories that kind of, it was supposed to be a a little story, which is why I called it Untitled, and then more and more started coming out. It's about two sisters. My mother calls me Haley. It's her idea of a joke. The skies turned black and you fell out of the sky, like hail. Get it? (laughs) My little Haley. My mother's name is Millicent. That's it. No second name or surname. As if to add more confusion and take away more letters, she prefers to be called Sende. Pronounced Sende. Like the money. You know, a cent. I came into this world with nothing. Not even Sende Ensu. Call me Sende. 
She jokes about coming into this world without so much as a black scent, but she never says where she's from or how she and Yasin survived the fire rain. We joke a lot about not having a surname. Surnames are old world things. So is giving birth. Santa found me and cared for me until I could walk again. So she's my mother. There are a few others living in the rubble of what used to be Johannesburg. We live in a penthouse at the abandoned, even before fire fell from the sky, Carlton Hotel on the 30th floor. No roof over our heads, but we live in a penthouse. The top of the building was probably blown away in the last days. We don't talk about the last days. There isn't much to say. Too much lost in so many blank spaces. One day the world was dull and the next it was filled with far too much excitement and panic. One morning while we were eating sandwiches at break time, Melanie asked me if I thought we would see the sun again. We can feel it, Mel. It hasn't gone anywhere. There's just... I know. Her bottom lip looked like it was going to fall on the ground. But do you think those clouds will ever move? Satellites can't see Earth. There haven't been any clear pictures. I'm scared. Melanie was my half-sister, sister because we were inseparable as kids, and half because my mother cleaned her father's house, so perhaps they half considered me a part of their family. After my parents died in a car accident, Melanie's parents promised to look after my sister and me, my real sister, Bonolo. I guess her having that name is a joke too. Bonolo means easy or uncomplicated, but nothing except her birth was easy for my sister. Bunola was a child genius who got straight A's, went to university before her age mates, graduated and never became the engineer she wanted to be. Instead, she grew tired of the job rejection letters and ended up working as a secretary for a GP. She'd also decided that being smart was a disadvantage, so she played small and unremarkable until she started to believe it. Santa thinks I don't like to talk about Bunola, but that's not true. Bunola is the one thing that makes me feel sane. She's like a light I run to in my mind when the new world causes clouds in my heart. When I'm staring up at a new sky, I run to Bonolo. Sometimes I find her in the kitchen of our small four-roomed house and watching her eating supper quietly, her one hand scooping up bub and gravy, the other hovering over my homework. Whenever she spotted a mistake, she would look up at me and pretend to choke on her food. At other times, I run to Bonolo and find her sleeping peacefully on the sofa after a long day of work. Quiet moments with my sister are why the silence of the new world doesn't scare me. I've grown used to the green skies that turn purple at night. Santa, your baby's awake. She's alive. Those were the first words I heard. It was Yasin. I couldn't see him at first, so I tried to sit up, but my arms wouldn't move. Suddenly, a bearded face appeared looking down at me. He said, sorry, it's the straps. You were like a trout on a boat. He unfastened the straps and helped me sit up while my brain was catching up with who or what I was. Instinctively, I brought a hand up to my eye and Yasin slapped it away. He looked nervous. Sente, please come here, now. The word now jolted a picture out of the fog in my mind. Bonolo. The rest is still foggy, but I remember that I didn't speak for weeks. What was there to say? Yasin and Sente didn't push me. They spoke to me like I would one day choose to answer them. They looked at me when they spoke to me, said my new name when addressing me, and life carried on around me. We sat together at the dinner table. They went shopping for clothes they thought I would like, taught me how to walk again, and cleaned the wound where my left eye used to be. 
I avoided my reflection and walked the dark, damp rooms of the abandoned hotel when the penthouse got too small for three people. We were a weird trio. Yasin was slim, very tall, and his broad shoulders were always hunched. Must have been a way to make people feel comfortable around him. My sister Bonola was also tall and she hunched her shoulders in the same kind of way, especially around a boy she liked. Senta looked like an old woman, a little soft in the belly and the skin was beginning to sag. Although she seemed to be in her 60s, she behaved a lot like a child. Sometimes when she was making supper, she would stop, throw the food out the window and start making a brand new meal. And then there was me with my bandaged eye, neglected afro and bouts of silence and anxiety. It took me days to figure out why I was always anxious. There was no people noise. No cars, no radios, no conversation, no music, and no background to our new world. We were the background, the foreground, the main focus, and that which is out of focus. It was exhausting to know that we were it. You can be angry, but you're not allowed to keep quiet, gum. It's just the two of us. Who else must I talk to? Do you want me to go crazy and talk to myself? That's what Bonola would say whenever we had a falling out and I chose to punish her with silence. Yasin only spoke to himself when he thought we were watching him. His solo conversations were nonsensical and occasionally funny. Really, he seemed to be watching Sente and I wanted to know why. I had to wait until he was helping me with physio and Sente was out doing whatever it was that she did when she said she was going shopping. Yasin? Yes, Haley. Please tell me your real name, man. Can't be nice to be called some junk name all the time. Gamu. The last person to say my name was my sister. Hearing it caused a lump in my throat, but I carried on. Is Yasin your real name? He nodded and carried on helping me stretch. I know you're not crazy, I told him. Never said I was. So why do you look at Sente like... Like I don't trust her? He stood up and wiped his brow. How many women over 60 do you think can walk up and down the stairs of this skyscraper once a week? Why did I wind up here in this building? He was sweating and I was getting anxious, but I let him speak. Some of it was difficult to follow, but it sounded like Yasin was in the middle of a long operation on a patient with cancer when fire started falling from the heavens. There was chaos in the hospital. I hid, in, I hid inside one of our labs. I don't know what I was thinking. He woke up in the penthouse and Senta's explanation was she was looking for survivors and found him in the streets. Why is that so hard to believe, I asked, pulling myself up onto my feet. Gamo, I lived in Kimberley. I was in a hospital in Kimberley, and that's more than 400 kilometers from here. His voice echoed in such an eerie way that we both kept quiet for a while. I think I'll stop there. That's really lovely. Thank you. So thinking a little bit about the ideas that you're, you're dealing with there, um, the a future Johannesburg, a kind of end of the end times um, kind of story. And um, what really jumps out at me is the the intimacy of the, the four people living um, in the Carlton Hotel. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about, about why you would have written those four characters together at the end of the world. Well, you know... This story, Untitled, and I couldn't give it a title because it was supposed to be just a, a short story. And I mean, it's a collection of short stories, but Untitled is one of the shortest ones. And it was literally about two sisters and the world was coming to an end. And one of them 
had the privilege of going to you know great schools and of course she had access to people who could get on ships and fly away from the world as it was falling apart and she then instead decides to give her sister the opportunity for, to, to see a new world to have something new outside of her struggles so one of them stays and the other goes and that was supposed to be the end of it and as I was writing more stories for the collection these two sisters kept on bothering me and I needed to know what happened to them so I, I wrote Untitled 2 and Untitled 3 and in Untitled 3 I mean Johannesburg is such a it's a densely populated area it's just busy all the time there's no quiet in in Johannesburg City mm. And I tried to imagine what it would look like if, you know, a huge part of the population had disappeared. Where would people be? What would they do with those spaces? Because the fact that that Carlton Center space is abandoned is crazy for me when there are so many people who need homes. Absolutely. And I was I was exploring what people would do with those buildings and, you know, whatever's left of of Johannesburg and I liked these three characters because um one of them obviously has a secret and the other is kind of playing crazy and one is just trying to figure out what's going on but she's also recovering from her wounds so I just like this idea of three people who don't know each other but have become each other's family somehow Absolutely. I love the idea of the chosen family in that and um, the bonding together that is necessitated by something like um, a catastrophic event, um, which we're all living through now, right? Mm. I, I'm interested, so in, in the introduction to your collection, Intruders, um, you write Afrofuturism is not for Africans. Um, and I think this is really important. I'm going to read this, this section now. You write, our needs when it comes to imagining futures or even reimagining a fantasy present are different from elsewhere on the globe. We actually live on this continent as opposed to using it as a costume or a stage to play out our ideas. And I think the excerpt that you read um, about Johannesburg um, is obviously exemplary of that. Could you share a little bit more about your ideas about Afrofuturism and what kind of stories you think are missing here? Well, you know, it's so funny because when I wrote this essay, I, I nearly didn't put it in the collection. And I told my publisher about it and she says, well, you have to put it in the collection. And I didn't think anyone would really read it or have a strong opinion about it. And then suddenly people were saying it's controversial. And I thought, well, what's controversial about saying that all black people are not the same and that our needs are not the same and our, our needs to Im our need to imagine our futures is not the same and I mean Afrofuturism I don't have a problem with it and I think we can consume and interact with each other's art without it being called one thing I'm very wary of uh, cultural imperialism as well and I talk about that in the essay as well mm. and I just think that in my stories about you know, the future. I don't have to talk about the fact that these people have a language that they've been speaking for a long time or they have their own culture. I can actually get down to the nitty gritty of this is what it may look like. So in Untitled 2, there's a story about Kamo's sister Bonolo who ends up on this, you know, on the spaceship. They they left Earth. All the rich people left Earth and they took a couple of poor people with them. And in the context of South Africa, it was, well, for me anyway, Apartheid is not something of the past. So what would that mean on the ship for people with no power? 
what would that mean? Would that mean there'd be an apartheid 2.0? And Munola says this interesting thing. She says, as it is on earth, so shall it be in heaven. And she's literally talking about whatever crap they were dealing with in, in South Africa before the world fell apart. They'll deal with that on the spaceship. And on the spaceship, there aren't any rules. There's no governments. There's no African Union. There's no UN. You know, there there's no politicians or whatever. So it's it's a different kind of navigating post-apartheid South Africa in a spaceship when the world has fallen apart. So those are the kinds of things I, I like to deal with. And I think Afrofuturism is great. I, I do like to read Afrofuturistic uh, work, but I don't think what I do is Afrofuturism. And I still maintain Afrofuturism is not for Africans living in Africa. I don't know what our thing is called. I'm I'm not a namer of things. I just wanted to point that little thing out. Absolutely, yeah. And as you say, it was it was controversial, but I think so important to um, to register these kind of these differences in um, what yeah, as you say, what it means to be black in the world um, in different places and with different you know levels of access to privilege mm. and your evocation there of um, you know an apartheid two point um, or what will a, or what might rather, a, a, you know, a post-apartheid or a post-colonial world look like when or if we left the planet um, is really interesting. It's obviously part of that very rich heritage of, of politics that imbues sci-fi. But you deal with the past really beautifully in The Yearning, your debut novel, for which you won um, the University of Johannesburg 2016 debut prize and you were shortlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award. And that you, in that you mix traditional and secular views. And you seem to be writing a future or a sort of future present that relies on facing past traumas. So this seems like a recurring um, theme in your work. Yeah, the other day I saw something, and I don't know who wrote it, they said there is no before, after, only during. And that's how I like to think of time. And that's why sometimes my stories are not linear. Sometimes we're in the past, and then we're back in the present, and we're in the future. I don't know how to write a linear story, because that's not how time works for me. And I didn't know this about myself as a writer until... (laughs) until I started writing The Yearning and then this came up again in Intruders. I'm interested in time as something that there's no past or present for me sometimes when I'm when I'm writing. I, I like to think, I don't know how to explain this, but I like to think of everything as during, like it's all happening right now and it all has an effect, you know, and it becomes very... Um, it becomes very tricky when people try to write things without any knowledge of the past or to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to write something about futuristic things, not thinking about the past or how, how history keeps repeating itself. That's why I like to think of things as during as opposed to before and after. Yeah, I really love that. The, yeah, the kind of permanence of time rather than the linearity of it. Um, and kind of inhabiting time rather than um, it passing us by, which is, you know, one of the ways that we articulate it. I, I love the analogy that you give of um, wearing tackies or trainers that fit us versus, res- you know, resisting or wearing these tackies to resist parroting UK and US cultural imperialisms um, and just choosing to, you know, wear the shoes, the tackies um, that fit. And I wanted to ask and speak a little bit about your work with Kwesi, South Africa's first superhero. Mm. 
Um, so how does how do you think that works in that? And what is your experience of, of writing South Africa's first superhero been? So Loisom Kiza and Clyde Beach started Quezi together, I think it was in 2014. And they kept on saying, oh, well, you know, Quezi is South Africa's first superhero. And I love telling this story. Quezi is not actually South Africa's first superhero. South Africa's first superhero was a dude called... I think he was called Mighty Man, and this was a part of apartheid propaganda. So Mighty Man was a good black person under apartheid, and mm. he was basically an instrument of propaganda. He was going around telling other black people, carry your passport, don't litter, don't do this, be a good citizen. But people never really took to Mighty Man, because if you're so mighty, why are you not stopping apartheid? <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know so <laughs> hmm. so I love that story of Mighty Man and I'm still to this day trying to find a copy of Mighty Man so I, I always think about that the the idea of Mighty Man being you know a good black person under apartheid and influencing other other black people and then I think of the story of Kwesi who is um, a kid from the Eastern Cape moved to Johannesburg we call it gold city and this guy is like lots of South African young South Africans who come from rural communities and move to big cities for opportunities and he's doing what a lot of young people are doing which is you know hustling as they call it presa pusha panda they're doing all of this this kind of stuff and because he's got to find himself and he's got he's wrestling with his parents traditional beliefs and what he believes is happening what he thinks is cool and he also he's also very reluctant to accept the chosen one you know uh, story because he is the chosen one and he'd really rather be an influencer with lots of instagram followers and you know do cool stuff and i i like the idea of quasi because it is very south african everybody wants to be a star i mean you just need to spend time in johannesburg to see that everybody really does believe that they're a star and I liked the idea of Kwesi being the antithesis of South Africa's real first superhero, which was Mighty Man. And for me, Kwesi is us wearing those those proverbial, proverbial tackies um, and staying in our lane, as opposed to just copying and pasting something that we think is cool from someone else. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you've said elsewhere that you've had really, really positive feedback um, on Quezzy from from um, your readers. And I presume that that readership spans generations. Yeah, it's really interesting when we when we do readings because we we expect a, a much younger crowd and then there are people who are like in their 20s because when we write it, we also, we do have subtext, you know, so the kids, of course, will enjoy like the bright colors and all of the car chases and whatever, but there's also subtext about being, being living a dual life in South Africa as, as a young black person where you've got all of these kind of Western ideals, but you also have a family, a traditional family who, who wants something different from you. And there's two things that want things from you and you have to decide which way to go. And we have lots of parents saying they love Kwesi too. And it's always really interesting for me that so many people across, you know, so many age groups are, are really in love with the story. I think it's really universal in terms of, or well, maybe not universal, but universal to to South Africa because because of this kind of worldview of um, anyone can make it in Johannesburg, 
Um, or, you know, Johannesburg <laughs> is the city paved with gold, which has, you know, for the longest time been part of the country's sort of uh, mythology. And then the reality of, of kind of multiple cultures and trying to, as you say, mix the mix your traditional and your family expectations with, um, yeah, with the Western ideals. I, I'm going to repeat one of your own questions back at you. I think this is really interesting. Um, and you don't answer it in the um, in the introduction to Intruders. So I'm really <laughs> keen to hear what you, <laughs> what you think now. How does who we are right now affect an imagined future? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm working through this uh, in my work. You know, the more I write, the more I feel like if we don't imagine a, a different world based on who we are and knowing what, what kind of a past we had, and I'm, maybe I'm speaking specifically about South Africans, if we don't think about where we come from, then how do we how do we imagine? Because we have to know the things we don't want. Like here's a, a basic example, apartheid. We don't want that, right? It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our past. So when we imagine a future, obviously one of the things is zero apartheid. But what were the, the things that happened that made apartheid so, I won't say successful, but it, it definitely went on for too long. It shouldn't have happened, but it went on for far too long. What were the circumstances that made that made that happen and in order to imagine a future we need to know all of that stuff it's nice to know that Furfut came up with a couple of laws but what was happening before would I go as far as the Anglo-Boer war probably you know so I think if we if we have an understanding of who we are what we've experienced and what has shaped us and we want to imagine futures I think we need to understand that first so I don't know if I'm answering your question. I don't even know if I'm answering my own question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely the case. Um, and I think you do a really beautiful job of that, of digging into the the who and the what of the characters to think about what kind of future uh, they might um, inhabit. Thinking about what you might be reading or um, watching or interacting with media-wise at the moment, um, what kind of imagined futures are you looking for? Well, you know, I've been... I've been thinking about love, this idea of love and how the world is really when we talk about love, people think about romantic love. And so this is because my my new novel, well, the one it's my work in progress, it is about love, but it's not just about romantic love. It's about the work of love, you know, and given what's happening in the world, a lot of people are saying, teach me, I want to be different, but also I'm I'm so sensitive to my privilege and love is undoing that, right? Love love is unlearning and love is learning. And I think when I think about futures, um, specifically in this book that I'm working on, there's a lot of learning and unlearning, but it's all rooted in love because love is work. And for me right now, when I think about futures, I'm thinking about the work of love, whether it's love for the planet, love for yourself, love for your community, um, love for your gender. I just think for me right now, I'm, I'm really, really thinking about if there's any future to be imagined, it needs, we need to start looking at what the work of love is. That's really, really powerful. Um, I love that idea. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next novel. When is, um, is, is there a due date on that? Um, and can you give us any teasers? <laughs> Both my agent and my publisher think they're going to get something soon. But I've been doing so much unwriting 
just going back to things and going, oh no, when I first wrote this, and this was many years ago when I first wrote it, this seemed like a great idea, but I've grown so much that I feel like I'm kind of rewriting it. It's becoming a different story. So I, I don't know when it will be out in the world. And that's kind of your process, isn't it? That you, you write something and you leave it alone for a bit, you come back to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm one of those people that cannot be working on one thing only. So right now I'm working on Quizzy and I'm working on this novel, but I've already started another writing project that will probably be novel number three. And I, I like to do that because then I don't have anxiety about, oh my goodness, can I still write or whatever. And I'm sure this this side thing that I'm doing for fun I'll be I'll go back to it in two years and be like oh yeah this was a good idea let's do this I always like to have something in the wings narrative futures for those writers and speculators listening stay with us now for writing prompts and exercises designed to encourage putting pen to paper or hands to keyboard as well as reflection on the writing process. This section is designed and presented by Louis Greenberg. In Untitled 3, Mohale Mashigo reimagines her home city of Johannesburg in an apocalyptic time. Writers and filmmakers are very aware of the pleasure of destroying our hometowns. For your first prompt, describe an end to your hometown, city, neighborhood or village. You might like to write a few paragraphs of key description and action and then write some brief contextual notes. As always, the word count is up to you, but for the purposes of this exercise, I'd like you to keep it local. Imagine an apocalypse in a place you know intimately, maybe even to the extent of boredom. It may just be a few streets or a familiar field, or it may be an entire city centre you can commute with your eyes closed. Remember that apocalypse isn't necessarily complete destruction. What does apocalypse mean to you? You may like to pause now and come back when you've written. When you've written your apocalypse, ask yourself, what have you chosen to destroy? Why? What have you chosen to change? Has anything grown or prospered? What have you chosen to describe? Has your focus been on buildings, nature, people, or anything else? List up to five ways your familiar place will be worse. List up to five ways life there might be better. As always, please feel free to share your results with us. Mashigo says she doesn't know how to write a linear narrative. There's no before or after, she says, only during. This interplay between linear and non-linear and nested narratives is a common theme throughout these interviews. For your second prompt, Practice playing with temporal form. Take the Genesis myth, or any other famous linear cause and effect plotline, and rewrite it in a non-linear way. I often think of Kurt Vonnegut's Troll for Medorians in Slaughterhouse-Five when I think of non-linear narrative. They teach Billy Pilgrim to become unstuck in time. They see humans as stuck on a railway car, travelling in the same direction at a constant speed, looking only in one narrow direction, whereas Tralfamadorians can visit any part of the temporal net at will. Mastering Tralfamadorian time would allow us not only to write stories in an interesting new way, but also as a byproduct, it releases us from the concepts of fate and destiny 
which I might argue have caused a number of problems in the world. How would the creation of Adam and Eve and original sin look different if cause was unlinked from effect? Consider the technical and philosophical repercussions of being unstuck in time. And that concludes the second episode of Narrative Futures. If you have any comments or would like to submit work to be featured on our blog, please email us at futuresthinking@torch.ox.ac.uk. You can also follow us or tweet us on Twitter at thinkfuturesnow. Your host on this podcast is Chelsea Haith, and you can tweet me at Chelsea underscore Haith. And Louis Greenberg is also on Twitter at Louis Greenberg. Thanks to Mahali Mushigo for joining us on this episode. Next week, I'll be speaking to Sami Shah about jinns, that's D-J-I-N-N, Pakistani myth, and whether or not we might replace our governments with benign AI. Narrative Futures